You're listening to Killer, and this is case number 19. Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. Carla Homoko was born May 4, 1970, to her parents, Carol and Dorothy. She was the eldest of three siblings, Lori and Tammy. Carla grew up with her family in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada. She was described as having a good upbringing and an eagerness to do well as a student. Carla worked in a pet shop part-time as she worked her way through Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School. She graduated in 1988 and was hired by Thorold Veterinary Clinic, where she was a vet assistant. Later, she moved to another clinic, Martindale Animal Clinic, where she performed similar duties. Homoka, by all accounts, was an attractive, vibrant young woman who was well-liked, friendly, and intelligent. At the age of 17, Homolka attended a pet convention in Toronto. It was on October 17, 1987, where she met 23-year-old Paul Bernardo. Bernardo was an attractive man, smart, charming, and charismatic. Bernardo, born August 27, 1964, to parents Kenneth and Marilyn, lived the opposite lifestyle as Homolka. Paul's father was the son of an English woman and an Italian immigrant. Kenneth's father was abusive to his wife and to him and his siblings. This behavior was passed down to Kenneth, and by all accounts he was abusive to his own wife and kids, including Paul. After Paul's mother gave birth to his older brother and sister, she had an affair with a former boyfriend and became pregnant with Paul. Kenneth dealt with the affair and is listed as the biological father to Paul on the birth certificate. In 1975, Kenneth was charged with child molestation for fondling a young girl. He was also known to have abused his own daughter. Marilyn withdrew from the family in the light of these events and stayed in the basement of their Scarborough home almost exclusively. Paul's siblings had a hard time dealing with these events, but Paul always seemed to be unfazed by it. He was described by everyone who knew him as fun, happy, always smiling, and cute. At the age of 16, Paul's mother and father got into a fight. After the fight, his mother told him of the affair and his real father. Paul was taken aback and began lashing out at his mother, frequently calling her a slob and a whore. Paul graduated from Sir Wilfrid Laurier Collegiate Institute and began working for Amway. He frequently listened to books and tapes of motivational speakers and the get-rich-quick types. He took these techniques, and he and his friends would apply them to trying to pick up women as they would meet the men at the bars. Paul eventually developed and began expressing his dark sexual desires. This also translated into the abuse of women. He would often beat them up and humiliate them in public. As Bernardo's sexual desires graduated, he began terrorizing the Scarborough area by committing a series of serial rapes. He struck twice in May of 1987. On May 4th, he committed his first known rape in Scarborough of a 21-year-old woman who he had followed home. He attacked her in front of her house, and it lasted for around a half an hour. The second attack happened on May 14th. This attack lasted over an hour. On July 27th, he attempted another attack, but it was abandoned as the woman was able to fight back after he, began, he started beating her. 
I've read conflicting accounts of the story, but it appears that Paul entered the bedroom of the 15-year-old girl, and while in there, he held her at knife point and also abused her. During the altercation, the victim's mother entered the room and screamed, which caused Paul to flee. Following the failed attack, there was a lull in the rapes. During this lull is when Paul Bernardo met Carla Homolka. They were both attending the same pet convention in Toronto, when the pair really hit it off. At the same night, they shared dinner and had sex. And soon after, they discovered they shared the same sadomasochistic tendencies. So you have Carla, who's got a background of being, you know, so it sounds like pretty prim and proper, well-liked, good student, all these great things, like what you would really hope your daughter grows up like. And then you have Paul, who was raised in an abusive home. And then he finds out the news later in life that he's really, um, you know, the child of, uh, of an affair. And so that really shakes him quite a bit. And then, you know, the two somehow intertwined a meet up at a pet convention in Toronto, which is pretty interesting. But on top of that, you see Paul starts acting out um, aggressively towards women and begins a, a string of rapes in the Scarborough area. So there's a lot to really unpack there. So Craig, I, I'm pretty sure you're coming in cold to this one. What did you make of the uh, groundwork so far as we lead up to the meeting of Carla and Paul? Well, definitely they're coming from two, what sounds to be two different backgrounds. Really caught me off guard there at the end of that piece where as soon as they discover they share the same sadomasochistic tendencies, that, that's a lot to learn about a person. And what sounded like it started out as a, you know, a one night fling, <laughs> but it sounds like it, you know, Obviously, it turns into more than that. I mean, the very first night they're together, they hook up. So that's uh, that's not, I wouldn't say uncommon, but it's also one of those things that a lot of people still hold as uh, a tradition. Like, you know, you don't put out on the first date, you know, that's just a thing for a lot of people. I mean, I don't know. I haven't had to date anyone in well over 15 years, so <laughs> my dating game cred is a little bunk at this point. but. I still think that it is a value that it sounds like a lot of people just from, you know, listening to a lot of media and talking and all that stuff. It seems like a value people still hold on to. Yeah, he really got thrown for a curve when he found out that who he thought was his father really wasn't. Did the description of his dad sound like he was very abusive, you know, towards him to begin with? So, you know, aside of me can see where maybe he was happy <laughs> that that wasn't his real dad. But I mean, that that emotionally. So finding out something like that has to, to really mess with a person, honestly. And I've heard of this happening oh, in yeah. other cases. And, you know, if you ever watch Maury Povich, I think that that was the whole basis of that show for a long period of time. Who's the, who's the <laughs> real daddy, right? But Yeah. I, you know, and the one thing about that, too, is so his, uh, what he knows to be his dad is very abusive. Right. And then he finds out that's not his dad. And his mom let this man who is not his dad abuse him. Like I can, I can really see you being vehemently pissed off about this. You know, as you, you're a little bit older, you're at that age where you're trying to find yourself and you're coming into your own as uh, soon to be an adult. And then you find out for your whole life, you're being abused by a man who isn't even related to you. And that's a great point. He, maybe he was extra bitter towards his mother which in turn translated into him being abusive towards other women, that, that maybe that hatred manifested towards other, other women. You know, it, it really, really scarred him, I guess. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
After the pair hit it off, the Scarborough rapist attacks continued. It was just two months after their relationship began that Paul raped again, twice in December. Following attack on December 16th, the Toronto police issued a warning to women traveling late at night and riding buses that they should be extra vigilant and try to travel with a companion. Just a week later, on December 23rd, he struck again. Following this attack, the media dubbed him the Scarborough Rapist. Following this attack, there was another break in his attacks, and it wouldn't be until April 18th, 1988, that he would strike again. On May 25th, Paul was almost caught by an undercover officer staking out a bus shelter. Paul was hiding under a tree nearby when the officer spotted him and pursued him on foot. Paul was able to make his escape. Five days later, he would strike again. On May 30th, this time, it was at 25 miles southwest of Scarborough in Mississauga, Ontario. Again, another long break in the attacks would occur. While all this is going on, Paul and Carla continue on in their relationship as normal. She was made aware at some point that he was the Scarborough rapist, but I was unable to track down exactly when she found out. The pair continued on sharing their sadomasochistic tendencies, and Carla actually encouraged the rapes. A series of rapes continued for quite some time. There would end up being about 19 different attacks. Not all ended in rape, as some attacks were aborted. However, on May 26, 1990, Paul attacked and raped a 29-year-old woman. She recalled the details of the attacker, and the police generated a computer composite portrait. The composite was released to the Toronto area newspapers two days later. It was around July that police began receiving tips that pointed towards Bernardo as a prime suspect for the rapist composite. Carla and Paul spent a lot of time together since they met, and by 1990 he was spending a lot of time with the Hamoka family. He took a particular liking to Carla's sister Tammy. She was a young, athletic girl, particularly interested in cross-country and soccer. Over time, Paul grew fond of Tammy. He would go as far as having Carla pretend to be Tammy while having sex. It was also reported that Paul had Carla tamper with her sister's blinds in her bedroom so that they wouldn't close properly. Then, Paul would watch her through the window and masturbate from outside, and at times he would enter her bedroom and masturbate while she was asleep. In September, Paul reportedly told his fiancée that he had gotten drunk and made out with Tammy while taking her to get beer for a party. By September of 1990, Paul had expressed his desire to have sex with Tammy. In November, Paul was questioned by authorities regarding the Scarborough rapist cases, and while being questioned, he admitted he looked similar to the composite. He also gave a sample for forensic testing. Authorities found that such a well-put-together man could not possibly be the man capable of raping and attacking these women. In his ever-increasing desires to have sex with Tammy, Paul convinced Carla to come up with a plan to knock her out and then rape her. According to Paul, on July 24th, Carla laced spaghetti sauce with crushed Valium in it that she stole from the animal clinic she was working for. After a while, Tammy passed out and Paul raped her while Carla watched. A few months later, Carla stole some more drugs from the vet clinic a bottle of halothane. On Christmas Eve, 1990, the pair put sleeping pills in a, in a rum and eggnog cocktail. After she was unconscious, they undressed and raped her while filming the whole act. Once they began raping her, they soaked a cloth with the halothane and used it to cover her mouth and nose while they raped her. The entire purpose of doing this was to give Tammy's virginity to Paul as a Christmas gift, since he was unable to be her first. Tammy's parents were asleep upstairs as the rape was happening in the basement. As the rape was going on, Tammy began vomiting. The couple tried to aid her, but they couldn't help her. Once they realized they were going to call 911, they hid the evidence, then phoned for her help. The couple was acting strange that night. They were cleaning up their evidence by doing laundry, vacuuming, and making sure they covered their tracks. All that being said, Tammy's parents believed their story, and the coroner did too, calling Tammy's death natural. 
Following the death, Carla would dress up in Tammy's clothes and film herself acting as Tammy for Paul. Eventually, they would move out of the Homoka residence and got their own place in Port Deloise. In February of 1991, Bernardo made a move to St. Catharines, and the Scarborough rape stopped. On April 6, 1991, he did commit his 12th rape, but it was in St. Catharines. This one was different in that it was early in the morning and not near a bus stop. Yeah, so there's a lot going on there. Uh, the, the biggest thing is, so uh, Paul seems to take a liking to Tammy, Carla's younger sister, and she's, uh, I want to say she was 15. Or there and about. I mean, she was pretty young and still in uh, high school, and she was a virgin, and he knew that. And so, you know, he began like trying to come on to her and all that stuff. And eventually, he talks Carla into helping him rape her own sister, which is just incredible. And then, on top of that, I mean, they're drugging her with like some pretty legit drugs from the vet clinic that she's stealing. And as all this is going on, they videotape it. I was reading this and my mouth was just agape the entire time as I'm sitting there going, oh my God, like who does this? I honestly have no idea. That is pretty crazy. I mean, they tampered with her blind so he could, you know, peep in on her. They, yeah, they're drugging her and doing all this stuff. And she's compliant to do this to her sister. Yeah, and uh, buried in all of that is the fact that Paul even gets questioned by authorities about being the rapist because he looks very similar to the composite sketch, and they let him go. Like, he's that convincing. So if he could convince police, who are experts in detecting liars, that he had nothing to do with these rapes in which he was actually the person, and then he can talk his girlfriend into knocking his... Um, her younger sister unconscious so that he could rape her. I mean, this dude had to be like the world's greatest salesman. He could, uh, he could sell a ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves. Right. Well, we alluded to it earlier that didn't he have a fascination for the motivational speakers and, you know, the get rich quick schemes. So yeah, he did. And I can't believe you didn't acknowledge my Tommy boy reference right there. Oh, I, I did. I just didn't know what to, how to, <laughs> Didn't know how to react to that one. <laughs> Just said, okay. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, he did. He had that affinity for the um, the get-rich-quick schemes, the motivational speakers, those kind of people who generally seem pretty sleazy anyway. He seemed to be among them. Uh, we have to be careful there, though. We don't want to say that they're sleazy. Some people really enjoy that type of stuff. and Those people are sleazy. <laughs> No, those people are pretty sleazy, mostly. I don't know. I, I'll, I'll stop short of saying what I was going to say next, because that, that would re really piss a few people off. But uh, yeah, they're definitely, in my opinion, very sleazy, usually. Con artists. Yeah, they're just really, they're really good salesmen, really good at talking. How many people do you know get rich quick? None. And then you have all these people who are out there telling you how to do it. And it's like, well, no, you're just a scam artist, and people can... You're good at talking and people believe you. So that's how you got rich. You didn't get rich by whatever stuff is coming out of your mouth. You just got rich because you were able to lie to people and convince them otherwise. Right. I, I totally agree, by the way. I just thought that was funny piece of the, the story here. On June 7th, 1991, Homolka invited a 15-year-old girl that she had befriended while working at the pet store, referred to as Jane Doe, for a girl's night out. 
The girls spent the evening shopping and dining. That night, Homolka took the girl back to her home and fed her alcohol laced with halcyon. The girl lost consciousness and Homolka called Bernardo to come over, stating his wedding gift was ready. They undressed a girl and Bernardo videotaped Homolka while she raped the girl. Then Bernardo vaginally and anally penetrated her. The following morning, Jane Doe awoke and was vomiting. She believed that was due to getting drunk for the first time, but she had no clue she had been raped. On the evening of June 14, 1991, ninth grader Leslie Mahaffey went to the wake for her friend Chris Evans. Chris had died in a car accident earlier in the week. After the wake, a bunch of friends got together and went into the woods to drink and console each other. Around 2 a.m., the group walked Leslie home, where she found her side door locked. She told her friends that the front door would be unlocked and dismissed the group, and she headed to the front door. Mahaffey decided she would head over to a payphone at Max Milk and call her friend to see if she could come sleep over. Her friend told her no, and they continued chatting for a while, but finally ended their conversation around 2.30 a.m. She said to her friend that she would just head back home and wake up her mother to let her in. The next day, she never made it to the funeral for her friend Chris. Once her mother realized this, she phoned the police and alerted them that she was missing. On June 18th, Debbie Mahaffey officially filed paperwork to declare that her daughter was a runaway. That night, Paul Bernardo was on Keller Court, the street where Leslie's home was located. He was out stealing license plates when he found Leslie alone. He reportedly told her he was breaking into the home next door and offered her a cigarette. Conveniently, the cigarette was in his car. When they got near his car, he wrapped his sweater over her head and shoved her into his car. He was able to get her back to his house where Homolka was. An alternate version of this story was recounted by Homolka. She said the girl was held at knife point, but she was not actually present during the kidnapping. The couple held Mahaffey captive for around 24 hours. The pair abused her, raped her, tortured her, and videotaped the whole thing. Bernardo and Homolka offered differing accounts of what happened next. One version of the story, according to Homolka, goes like this. Bernardo strangled Mahaffey with an electrical cord twice. The first attempt failed to kill her, so he did it again, and the second time she died. The pair also used the same sedative drugs to knock her out that they used on Homoko's sister Tammy. The second version of the story, according to Bernardo, is that he was out of the room getting his car ready to transport Mahaffey. They were going to put her in the car and drop her off in an unknown location, alive. Bernardo left the home for a while, getting gas for the car, showering, and doing other things. When he returned, Mahaffey had died from an overdose on the drugs. He also claimed that he didn't know that she was dead until he tried to pick her up and carry her away. He also claims that the pair panicked and began trying to resuscitate her, but she was dead. They also state that they gave her a teddy bear to hold in between the attacks. On June 16, 1991, they moved her body from an upstairs bedroom to the basement. That evening, the Homoka family came over to visit, while the body was in the basement the whole time. The couple kept the family upstairs until they were done for the night. Once the Homoka family left, the pair used Bernardo's grandfather's saw to dismember Mahaffey. The body parts were encased in concrete and disposed of. Mahaffey's body was discovered on June 29, 1991, encased in concrete in Lake Gibson near St. Catharines, Ontario. Authorities confirm her identity through dental records. So there's a lot, I mean, going on there. You have the rape of Jane Doe, so a co-worker who was too young to be named, so they call her Jane Doe, but she was a friend of Homoka's at one point, then they convince her to come over, they drug her, and and rape her and then the next morning she's none the wiser which i think is probably their intended plan in the majority of these cases but then things just escalate from there i don't know that they were intending to murder people to be honest with you do you get that vibe i don't know because it sounds like they 
It's a pretty elaborate and tedious way to get rid of the body for sure. Hide it downstairs, cut it up, encase it in concrete, and dump it in the lake. There's a lot of work involved there. To me, it almost sounds... My impression is that maybe they had thought through this. If the, if somebody else died, you know, what are they going to do to get rid of that person? Maybe they didn't intend to kill her, but they had a backup plan if they did die, I guess. Yeah, like, I feel like um they had, like, with Tammy. Like, I don't feel like they intended to kill Tammy. But then what happens is, I think, you know, it happened... And then they realize, like, oh, crap, when we're using these drugs, like, we've got to have some kind of a backup plan to do, you know, in case something else happens, like, beyond what we're trying to do. And then with the Jane Doe, it works as as it was supposed to. They just knock her out enough that she has no idea what's going on, and she's none the wiser the next morning. I don't know. I, I have a mixed feeling on this. I mean, I think it's, like, plan B every time. I just don't think they're very good I think that executing plan A. But Homolka has to realize that the drugs that they're feeding to these people, unbeknownst to the victim, is pretty heavy-duty stuff. You alluded to that. That's pretty serious drugs that they're using to knock these people out. And obviously, if you're not careful with how much you give them, you're going to kill them. And that's what happened here. You know, a little bit too much, and she OD'd. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's just one of those things like, was it intentional or not? I'm not sure. I don't think it was. I think that they, well, okay. So one thing that we haven't said, and we might touch on a little bit later in the narrative, but I don't think they hide their faces from these people at all. So they're very identifiable. Right. And so, I mean, on one hand, then you say, okay, well, any normal person thinks, well, they're going to try and kill them, you know, to because they're able to be ID. Right. They haven't hidden their face. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm still kind of on the fence at this point, um, whether or not this is all intentional as far as like the actual murders go. Now, obviously once they find out these people are either like beyond coming back or whatever, they have no hesitation around taking the next step. One thing that bothers me about what we just read and going back to what we described for both of these people up front was she seemed to be like a you know a normal average everyday girl and then turns out she's got this sadomasochistic side now they're cutting up they're killing people cutting them up and dumping them in a lake okay what really happened to her homolka early on to for this to be a fascination of hers i just you, you hear stuff like this in some of these cases and i i've always wondered what makes a a person this way when by all accounts they were they had a normal upbringing they had a decent childhood what 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 flips that switch that's a great point uh you know who knows but like you said like they claim she had a great normal regular upbringing and then you know she's into this stuff it it could simply just be that she wasn't really into this stuff at least not at first and then she meets this guy and she likes him and he's really into it so by proxy, she feels like she wants to be loved or needs that affection from from a man, and so she just starts rolling with the punches. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case, that like she just kind of started leaning into what Paul was throwing out, you know, just because. Right. Yeah, I guess it's possible. And it, it's still, it's crazy that somebody falls for somebody that hard that they buy into that deeply, that crazy to well, me. Yeah, and the fact that she was encouraging him to be a rapist, 
Like, it's one thing to like dirty stuff in the bedroom. It's another thing to encourage somebody to go out and commit crime, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. She's like, hey, here's your wedding present. Like, holy shit, who does that? Yeah, I, she's like next level effed up on so many ways. You know, like, it's just uh, the way that she's going about it is like extremely crazy to me. Uh, but yeah, like, I don't know. She must have just really fell for for this guy like so hard that she was willing to do anything it it seems completely out of my yeah i don't i don't understand on april 16th 1992 bernardo and homolka were driving through saint catherine's looking for another potential victim it was the day before good friday the pair spotted kristen french a 15 year old student who was out walking to her home they parked their car in a nearby parking lot for grace lutheran church homolka got out of their car and took her map pretending to need help while French was looking at the map, Bernardo came up from behind her and forced her into the car at knife point. She was placed in the front passenger seat while Homolka sat behind her and kept control of her. French's parents were immediately suspicious something bad had happened and called the Niagara Regional Police. Within 24 hours, there was a team searching for the now-missing girl. Bernardo and Homolka spent the Easter weekend tormenting Kristen French. They videotaped themselves forcing her to drink large amounts of alcohol and being submissive to Bernardo. French was never blindfolded during any of these attacks. Bernardo had been out buying pizza when he was spotted by a woman who he had stalked the month before, named Carrie Patrick. She reported him to the NRP, which may have led them to discover French at his home. On Easter Sunday, the couple murdered French. Bernardo strangled French for exactly seven minutes while Homoka watched. Bernardo reported that Homoka beat French with a rubber mallet because she tried to escape and that she ended up being strangled on a noose tied around her neck and secured to a home chest. French's nude body was discovered on April 30, 1992 in Burlington, which is about 45 minutes from St. Catharines. Her hair was cut and the body had been washed as a way to try to stop from being identified. Homolka and Bernardo had been questioned many times regarding the Scarborough rapes and some stalking incidents of other girls prior to the death of French. On May 12th, Bernardo was interviewed regarding the murders, but was later determined he was an unlikely suspect and was let go. Three days later, a task force was formed called the Green Ribbon Task Force to investigate the murders of French and Mahaffey. Not long after this, Bernardo and Homolka applied to have their names legally changed to Teal, in homage to a serial killer from the 1988 movie Criminal Law. By the end of May, John Motile, who was an acquaintance of Bernardo, reported him as a possible murder suspect. In December of 1992, the Center of Forensic Sciences finally tested the DNA samples that Bernardo had provided two years prior. On December 27, 1992, Bernardo beat up Homolka quite severely. He hit her in the face with a flashlight and all over her body. In a photo from the aftermath, she had two black eyes and looks like she took a major beat down from him. Homolka returned to work on January 4th, but she was severely bruised. She told co-workers it was from a car accident, but they didn't believe her and called her parents. The parents came and removed Homolka from the house, but she returned to search for something. Her parents took her to the hospital where she gave a statement to the NRP that she was a battered spouse and filed charges against her husband, Paul Bernardo. He was arrested but later released, and Homolka moved in with some relatives. Toronto police were informed, a full 26 months after the collection of Bernardo's DNA, that he was a match for the Scarborough rapist. They began surveilling him immediately. The Metro Toronto Sexual Assault Squad interviewed Homolka on February 9, 1993. She didn't say much outside of the abuse issues she faced with him. Later that night, she told her aunt and uncle that he was the Scarborough rapist, and she also confessed to being involved in the murders of Mahaffey and French, and she also told them that the rapes were recorded on videotape. 
Immediately following the confession, her family reported her, and the NRP reopened the investigation into Tammy Homolka's death. On February 17th, Bernardo was arrested and a search warrant was obtained. Due to his link being quite weak to the murders, the search warrant was very narrow, and the only tape they were able to find was one where Homolka was briefly seen performing oral sex on Jane Doe. The investigators were not allowed to destroy anything in the home, and if they found any tapes, they had to be viewed on premise. Homolka was offered a plea bargain of 12 years. If she declined, she would be charged with two counts of first-degree murder. She agreed to the plea and immediately began talking. She told police that Bernardo had claimed to have raped at least 30 women, which was twice the number police suspected him of. A controversial issue that occurred during the preliminary inquiry of Homolka was that there was a publication ban. It was put into effect to protect the right to a fair trial of Paul Bernardo. Homolka approved of the ban, but Bernardo's lawyers argued Bernardo would be prejudged by the ban since Homolka was being portrayed as his victim. The ban wasn't very effective since, in the U.S., the ban couldn't be enforced and the internet was also becoming a thing. Homolka's testimony was detailed, and Canadians were bringing publications from the Buffalo News and other media outlets across the border. Some news outlets, like the New York Times, were banned at the border and not sold in stores. It's really fascinating that <laughs> this, all this stuff is unfolding uh, relatively quickly. So they finally test the DNA sample uh, at the end of December. And so about a month later, they start talking to uh, Carla and then eventually close in on Paul. And so on February 17th, they arrest him. And what's interesting is, you know, we know based on the story now, there's all these other tapes and stuff that are going on. But the police didn't know this at the time because their search warrant was so limited. They weren't allowed to destroy anything while in the house. So if something was hidden in a weird location, they weren't allowed to like take it apart and do this stuff because everything was, you know, weakly linked back to him. So they didn't, you know, anything they found, they had to look at it while they were there and they didn't find much. And so they had, you know, a hard time coming up with evidence there. And then the judge places a, a media blackout basically on the details of Homoka's trial and they, you know, they offer her this plea bargain of 12 years. They don't know the extent of everything that has gone on yet. And so she's getting like the deal of a lifetime in essence. Yeah. And, you know, people are pissed off because they're not allowed to detail the case in the papers to try and keep a fair trial for, for Paul. It's, it's crazy in a lot of ways, like the way this is shaking out. My question is why so many stipulations on the search warrant. Why was the evidence have to be viewed there? They couldn't destroy anything or uncover anything in any, you know, unreasonable way. What what exactly is the point of that? Especially when you're investigating, you know, a case with so many potential victims and so much you know, damage that was already done. Why are they so? I, I don't know. Why why were they tap dancing around with the search warrant? I guess. I think it's just because at the time that they had the search warrant, they didn't have a ton of evidence. And it was so weak, the connection, that the judge felt like, guys, like, don't go in here and, like, destroy this home of this person who could possibly even be innocent. Like, we don't know enough to feel comfortable saying we, we think he's guilty. We just know enough to say we think we need to be looking around. So it seems like they're just being extra cautious and just, you know... Unlike in the United States, I feel like Canadians are a little more nice and uh, conscientious of these things and give people the benefit of the doubt. 
And so I think that's probably what was going on here is the judge gave him the benefit of the doubt that he wasn't necessarily guilty of these things, especially because they didn't have a ton of evidence on him that said he was. And so it was like, okay, well, we're not going to come wreck your life on a few tips that were, you know, hearsay. Like we don't have strong evidence. So until we do, we're not going to go into your house and like start knocking down walls and digging in your yard and stuff, you know? It's like, we're just going to check around and see if anything obvious, you know, throws up any red flags. Right. Well, there was a major red flag with the, the videotape they found of Jane Doe. I mean, they... Well, not necessarily because she wasn't murdered and she didn't know that she had been raped. True. So so they don't have... They still don't have anything. Yeah, Carla's doing this, but they don't know that that person is not, not willing. And they said it was a short clip, like it wasn't like the whole ordeal. So they don't even know that she had been knocked unconscious and... They probably don't even know she's underage. Maybe they do. I don't know if you could tell in the video. You know, like, I don't know the details of the video. Right. But, you know, my guess is they have very limited stuff to go by, and that person could have very well been into what was going on. Right. Just based on what they saw from the short clip, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, and you said the deal of a lifetime, and that's an understatement. 12 years for everything that she's implicated in is is the deal of a lifetime. <laughs> for sure. Well, at the at the point of that deal, they don't know the details of a lot of things yet. Like they barely know what's going on. They haven't even scratched the surface. So they give her 12 years, which at the time seems like, oh, "Okay." And then more stuff comes out. Right. So Bernardo was tried for the murders of French and Mahaffey in 1995. His trial did include the testimony of Homolka and the videotapes from the rapes. He testified that the murders were accidental and that Homolka was in charge of the of the rapes. On September 1st, 1995, he was convicted on several charges, including two first-degree murder charges, two aggravated sexual assaults, and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for at least 25 years, and he was labeled a dangerous offender, which means he'll most likely never be released. Due to her plea bargain, Homolka testified against Bernardo in court during his murder trial. The plea bargain was a major issue because Bernardo's first defense attorney withheld the videotapes for 17 months which would have likely resulted in Homolka receiving a much different fate. Bernardo was kept in segregation for his own safety during his prison stay. In February of 2006, Bernardo admitted to assaulting at least 10 other women in attacks not previously attributed to him. Most of these took place in 1986. Bernardo was assessed for psychopathy. He scored a 35 out of 40, which means he was classified as clinical psychopathy. In November of 2015, he released a book on Amazon called a mad world order, but was removed due to public backlash. Bernardo became eligible for parole in February of 2018, but he was denied on October 17, 2018. As for Homolka, she did well in prison and was evaluated many times to test her psychological state. They found that while she was able to present herself well, she had a moral vacuity that no one can explain. Homolka was released on July 4, 2005. Despite efforts from the families affected by her actions, she was able to get a release without much limitation. She relocated to Quebec, where she felt it would be more forgiving. In July 2005, she relocated again to the island of Montreal, and by November 30, 2005, any restrictions that were imposed on her during her release were lifted. In 2006, she requested to change her name, but that was rejected. In 2007, she gave birth to a baby boy. In 2007, it was also reported that she left Canada for the Antilles so that her child could live a more normal life. On June 21, 2012, a Canadian journalist tracked her down. She was living in Guadalupe and had changed her name to Leanne Bordelis. She is married to her lawyer's brother, Terry Bordelis, and they have three kids. 
He reported that she appeared to be an excellent mother. So that's it for the, the story of Paul and Carla. However, let's unpack a little bit of what happened there at the end. So it looks like the lawyer for Paul, his original defense attorney, had the videotapes in his possession at some point and never let anybody know about them or see them. And so Carla was able to skate on this plea bargain deal and, <laughs> and get away with it. So the way that it all shook out was, you know, she's equally as guilty in all of these things as he is, as far as like starting with her sister and, and moving on. Yet he's serving a life sentence and she gets out of jail, you know, <laughs> and after what's a relatively short prison term for what she had done. Yeah. And how can you live with yourself as a defense attorney doing something like that and having all of the evidence that it directly points her to all of her part in this whole thing is just crazy to me. Oh, yeah. Being like a defense attorney has to be one of the most challenging jobs. Like on one hand, you need to be good at it. So you, you know, so you can move on up in your career. On the other hand, you have to be conflicted about your representation of these criminals. And, you know, in some cases, you probably think to yourself, dude, this guy's so guilty. It's not even funny. And like, what do I do about this? And then in other cases, you probably strongly believe someone who could be a conman. Like, I could see Bernardo convincing his defense team that he was innocent, unless, you know, until they saw these videotapes, obviously, then it's like, okay, well, we know you're full of it. But, you know, I could see someone like that. If they didn't have that kind of evidence on hand, you know, talking to some of these guys, are they're pretty good con men, a lot of them. You know, they're pretty skeezy people, and they can get away with a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I don't, it's not something that I would ever be able to do, that's for sure. And I have to believe that there's varying levels of a defense attorney. You know, some of them actually probably want to make sure that they're representing those people that are innocent and want to make sure they're cleared and, you know, really, really do a great job on that side of things. But then there's the polar opposite of that where, you know, they're representing just the most heinous criminals that you can imagine. Everyone knows they're guilty, but how are they going to try to represent them in a way that, well, they either get a plea deal or what kind of moral compass do you have? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like, um, making a murderer part two, that woman, I'm sorry, I don't know her name off the top of my head. She like picks up his case. I haven't finished the series yet, but she seems like the kind of person who, at least in the documentary, they portray her as someone who is like a no BS kind of person. And that she's going to figure out if you're lying to her or not. And, and based on that, she's going to decide if she's going to continue representation. And it seems like she believes that like Stephen Avery in his case is innocent. So she's going to like great lengths to prove his innocence. Right. You know, and outside of looking like Cruella DeVille, she's looks like she's one hell of a defense attorney. And that's like the person you would want, the type of person you would want, you know, someone who's trying to figure out if you're really innocent and then represent you accordingly. Right. And I was just looking up her name because people are probably going to blast us for not knowing this. It's Kathleen Zellner. Yes, Kathleen Zellner. Yeah. Yeah. So she seems like she's got her stuff together. And, uh, you know, like, I mean, imagine trying to represent like uh, Joseph D'Angelo, like you got the Golden State Killer. I mean, they got you and like the first ever case of genetic genealogy has tracked you down and nailed you for murders and rapes and everything and they're 
calling it what's going to be the most expensive trial in U.S. history. Like, right. Absolutely crazy. Yeah. Not a career path I would choose. No, sir. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode. If you would like to reach out to us, feel free to hit us up on Twitter at killer underscore podcast or on Instagram at killer podcast, or you can visit our Facebook page where we have a Facebook group and it has become a little more active over the last couple weeks. So we will see you guys next time. Stay safe.